0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com, including reported stories, editorials, and regular columns, as well as our growing library of videos and, of course, podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim people in. China's Xinjiang region to China's ambitious effort to eliminate poverty. It's a feast of business, political and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you as I have for the past, what, now, 40 weeks from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Jeremy Goldcorn is leading a band of desperados in a daring heist of a Pfizer truck laden with vaccines and is unable to join, but he sends his regards. Uh, we have had all, all of us, I think. We've had way too many Zoom seminars and panel discussions this year, but uh, there was one which I was really glad to have watched, a talk put on by Brown University's Watson Institute, which featured one of the people in the world of China policy I hold in the highest esteem and whose perspectives are always deeply informed, eminently sensible, and unwaveringly principled. Ryan Haas is Armacost Chair at the John L. Thornton Center at the Brookings Institute, Senior Director at the Senior Advisor at the Scowcroft Group and Senior Advisor at McLarty Associates. Uh, Ryan was formerly China Director at the National Security Council during the second Obama administration, and we're delighted to have him back on Seneca. Welcome back, Ryan. Great to see you, man.
1: Thank you, Kaiser. It's really a pleasure for me to be back with you.
0: Uh, Ryan, I wanted to start by talking about some of the ideas that you put so well in that uh, talk I just referred to, the one at the Brown-Watson Institute last month, because I I think that the way that you laid these ideas out was just really clear and and really sensible. Uh, The first thing that you did was to tackle the question of what the structural issues are at the heart of the tensions between the U.S. and China. I I think we can mostly agree that they're not merely cyclical but indeed structural issues. Uh, You looked at three sets of of explanations that have been on offer. Uh, One set that's basically rooted... Uh, in a kind of Cold War-style ideological conflict, the one that's been put forth by by Pence in, uh, in, in his Hudson Institute speech back in October 2018, and by Mike Pompeo uh, in subsequent speeches. The second uh, is one that sees kind of mechanistic, inexorable historical trends at work, uh, and these ideas are, are you know, ones like the realists like John Mearsheimer, and, and I think you would include Graham Allison with his Thucydides trap stuff. Uh they assume that there's been a fundamental shift in relative power. And there's uh, a lot of assumptions in there, of course. But then there's this third, which basically sees this collision of, uh, of America's interests and China's ambitions. But it's, again, it's predicated on certain assumptions about what those ambitions are, about the scale and the scope of those ambitions. And Um, on the assumption that you can just draw a line between uh, what China does domestically, how it behaves domestically, and how it will act internationally. Um, I thought it was really a a great way of of looking at these issues. Um, It would be valuable, though, I think, to to, to look at these three sets of explanations and and tell our listeners what you think they get wrong, because I thought that was just such an interesting uh, way of, of, of approaching this.
1: Well, Kaiser, first of all, thank you for tuning into the talk at Brown University. You know, one of the silver linings of this COVID era is that in normal circumstances I would be speaking to a group of people that would be physically present in Providence. But uh with uh with the age of Zoom, we we all get to connect. Uh on on the three explanations and where I find trouble with each of them. Uh the first on deepening ideological divisions. It's it's an interesting sort of seductive argument that uh, that talks about how the United States and China are oppositional to each other in in sort of a compelling way, but it doesn't explain how the United States and China managed to deal with these ideological divisions that have been with us since President Nixon set foot in China for the first time in 1972. We were able to manage those ideological divisions throughout this entire time, and it it. It's sort of it. It's difficult to digest the idea that all of a sudden now uh, these ideological divisions have become so acute that they're they're in we are incapable of managing them. So I I struggle a little bit with with that explanation. On the second basket of explanations that you talked about, the sort of the mechanical or inalterable features of shifts in relative power, um, I have a few challenges. The first is. As you suggested, I'm not convinced that the Peloponnesian Wars in 400 BC are the best guide <laughs> for understanding the U.S.-China relationship right now. Uh, second, these explanations don't really account for the role that leaders play and the decisions that they have made that have brought the relationship to this moment or allow for the possibility that different decisions by different leaders could push the relationship in a new direction. Right. You know, I don't buy the, the notion that two nuclear powers – are driven solely by the logic of power maximization and are indifferent to any other risks in pursuit of relative gain against each other. And so I expect that this argument will fade a little bit in its Mm, salience mm -hmm, uh, mm. post-inauguration. And then on this third big basket of explanations about the irreconcilability of US and Chinese ambitions and interest, it leads you to think of the relationship as a deep ideological and philosophical struggle Uh, Where there will be a winner and a loser and the United States cannot afford to give an inch anywhere at any time because doing so would Help China gain ascendance at America's expense It leads to I think very monochromatic thinking about China as this monolithic actor with a single unitary Purpose and ambition and 1.4 billion people marching in lockstep in pursuit of that ambition, which I think is a bit overstated Uh, It also relies upon you know, 10 foot tall syndrome, this idea that right. every Chinese grand plan will be realized all at America's expense. And so it, it really pushes us uh, or, or those who are drawn to this uh, argument to think about ways to undercut China in order to protect America's place in the world. And I'm just not convinced that that is the, the healthiest or the most productive angle of approach for dealing with a really complex relationship such as the US-China relationship.
0: All three of them are a bit too zero sum for my way of thinking, in in any case. Uh, You suggested that part of the reason why these explanations, though, have gained traction uh, is that it's just been really difficult for anyone in the U.S., including the traditional advocates for engagement, the advocates for the relationship, to speak up against them, Uh, people like, well, like you and like me. I mean, I think a big part of the reason that it's been difficult is that Beijing has made it. So I think We could both easily enumerate many of the ways that that Beijing's done that, uh, and we can go into that if you'd like. But there are other factors as well that have made it really hard to defend the relationship. I mean, sizable shifts in the attitudes that Americans have toward globalization, uh, toward trade. Uh, When we spoke last time, we talked about how it was the political center in the U.S. that was still sort of where you could find defenders of, of engagement and of globalization has that changed? Um, I mean, with someone uh, often regarded as the ultimate centrist now coming into office, can the center now hold?
1: Well, we we will find out. I honestly, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm much more confident that the center can hold now than I was six months ago at this time. Right, right. Uh, um, I, you know, the the reality is that there is sort of two schools of thought about how to deal with China. One is like we were talking about this idea that the United States and China are locked into some deep ideological and philosophical struggle. And the other is that uh, the United States and China are the two largest actors in the international system. There's going to be intense competition, given our irreconcilable differences in certain areas, uh, our competing governance systems. But ultimately, as the the two biggest powers in the international system, we're going to have to find a way to coexist amongst uh, or amidst competition. And I think that that is what we're going to be experiencing in the next six months is sort of a shift from the previous mindset of the past four years about this deep ideological and philosophical struggle to a more centrist view of uh, finding ways to coexist amidst uh, intensifying competition.
0: Yeah, let's let's hope so. Uh, we talk about those last four years now. Um, let's let's start with what the negative lessons of those years. I mean, what are the things that that the Trump administration just manifestly did wrong, that, that did not produce the intended results. Uh, as you survey the, the scene now, after four years of Trump, how bad does that damage look, uh, not just with China directly, but also uh, with our relationships with key allies um, in the region and around the world?
1: Well, as I have been thinking about this question, I've sort of been thinking about it at two levels. The, the first is sort of the policymaking level. How has Trump left things for us? And From that perspective, I think the Trump administration has done a bit of a service to its successors in the sense that it it has raised awareness at home and abroad of the challenges that China poses. It has shaken things up and created a lot of space for new, innovative thinking about how to approach the relationship. And it has tested the proposition that the United States could compel China to change its governance or its economic model under the weight of escalating unilateral pressure. We've run that experiment now for four years, and the results sort of speak for themselves. Uh, the United States is not going to change China any more than China is going to change the United States. But in terms of the the overall relationship itself, I think where Trump will leave things is with a highly toxic, highly dysfunctional relationship. It's become pretty evident that, uh, that the level of disdain that both sides have for each other, the levels of contempt that both sides have for each other is it's no longer concealed. It's out in the open. Uh, both sides are daily reaching for ever more colorful rhetoric to uh, sort of insult uh, their counterparts. And there's been a real flair for, uh, for name calling and finger pointing in both directions uh, about the relationship. So it's a, it's a very toxic environment right now in the US-China relationship that is being compounded by the dysfunctionality of it. Um, outside of maintenance level trade talks, and working level communications between our, our militaries, there really are zero channels of communication that are functioning between Washington and Beijing right now. Both presidents haven't talked since February and are unlikely to do so uh, before Trump leaves office. And there, there really are uh, no serious or sustained efforts underway to solve any of the problems that exist in the relationship. And the question that this leaves me with is, are the American people safer, are they healthier, are they more prosperous? Uh, are they benefiting from a toxic and dysfunctional relationship between the United States and China? And I, my answer is no. Trump's strategy hasn't resulted in significant progress uh, in pushing China down the path of economic reform. It hasn't compelled Beijing to moderate its actions at home or abroad. It has not elicited more or better cooperation from China on issues that we care about. And on the contrary, Areas of U.S. confrontation have intensified. Areas of cooperation have vanished, and the capacity of both sides to deal with problems of relationship is is basically nil.
0: So I think none of us imagined that that Tony Blinken's going to be able to present uh, Wang Yi with a, a big red button that says reset on it. We we all know that. Uh, but I think that you know we do also recognize that this is an opportunity for a a change in pitch, a change in timbre, uh, a lowering of temperature. Uh, What can we deduce so far from Biden's personnel choices for Tony Blinken for state uh, and from from your friend Jake Sullivan uh, as national security advisor, our friend Jeff Prescott to be this Asia czar, if he he gets that, Uh, also from his decision not to pick Michelle Flournoy as secretary of defense. Uh, What are the assumptions about China and about the bilateral relationship that the Biden team uh, seems to have just based on, on this set of picks and this set of individuals?
1: Well, based upon what we know so far, um, I think that we can have uh, a fair degree of confidence that uh, the relationship will be in very capable hands. Um, all the people you mentioned, and I would add Avril Haines, Janet Yellen and, right. and others to, to that they're pragmatic, they're experienced. they're committed to a foreign policy that respects values and it is guided by a belief that foreign policy should serve the interests of the American people. Um, they're not reckless. they're experienced. But they're also comfortable advising the president on war and peace issues. Uh, they're not timid about the exercise of American power. Um, so I I guess I would expect that they are not going to personalize the relationship. They're not going to be emotional about it. It's not some moralistic good versus evil play. Uh, it's just hard-nosed competition between two major global powers. And what we do know, I think, with a high degree of confidence is that they will put restoring relations with allies and partners first and foremost on the priority list as a way of building leverage over time for dealing with China.
0: Right. China's strategy is 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 not strictly a bilateral issue, right? I mean, it shouldn't be. I, I want to ask you about some of the other questions that the Biden team um, will need to answer in order to define A China policy, and that really starts with uh, something that I talked about with Evan Fagenbaum on a recent show. Uh, What is the right relationship between an Asia policy and a China policy?
1: Well, for my money, uh, you can't have a good China policy unless you have a strong Asia policy. And so the the starting point of a a strong strategy has to be um, building cohesion with allies and partners in the region. And that starts with Tokyo. It starts with Seoul, Mm -hmm. uh, definitely with Canberra. And then building out from there uh, to include others, and I would add Taipei uh, as a very important partner in this. And the more that we're able to build cohesion uh, and sort of unity of purpose and shared vision uh, for the future of the region, the the stronger uh, our capacity to deal with China is going to be.
0: Right, right. We can zoom out from from China policy to Asia policy. Uh, I would like to think. What about? Zooming out further from that to grand strategy, do you sense that the Biden administration is likely to coalesce around something that could properly be called a grand strategy, a real articulation uh, for a vision of uh, America's place in the world and what it wants to accomplish?
1: It's a great question. I honestly don't know the answer to that. Uh, I know a lot of people are excited about the idea of elevating democracy promotion to sort of the center of uh, American foreign policy, or I should say, returning it to the center of American foreign policy. Uh, and I think that that will be important. Um, but that in and of itself is not a a grand strategy. I I tend to think that President-elect Biden has a, a few sort of um, instincts that he follows, but I'm not sure that I would put him in uh, a bucket of people that I would consider someone who's trying to create a doctrine uh, that will, you know, last for generations. Right. You know, he he's committed to multilateralism. He believes deeply in uh, working with allies and partners. He he cares about the institutions of the international order and working from within them to strengthen and improve them. He has a fair, I think I would say, a healthy degree of skepticism about the use of force. And he believes that the best way to deal with transnational problems is to bring countries together and have the United States play a galvanizing role in, uh, in spurring collective action. So I think that if you look at those instincts, which have been evident over the course of his you know, 40 plus year career, that's probably a pretty accurate guide to how he will govern. I would caution against, though. Drawing from statements that he made, you know, ten years ago or five years ago or twenty years ago, and using those as some type of directional indicator of where he will go. You know, he he also is very attuned to the political environment in which he makes decisions, and uh, I, I think that the decisions will be driven by the the environment in which they're made.
0: When we talk about rebuilding alliances, multilateralism, when we talk about uh, recentering. Things like democracy promotion in our foreign policy—that uh, all sounds really consistent with uh, what many of us uh, in, in the United States see as as reasonable and 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 proper. That might not read that way from Beijing, though, right? Uh, when they hear multilateralism and and uh, restoring of alliances, they they what what lands on their ears is, you know, containment, encirclement. Uh, when they hear democracy promotion, they think color revolution, Arab Spring, they think, uh, you know, n- not sort of the neoconservative style, it's not going to be tanks rolling in and, and toppling statues of your, your leaders, but rather uh, those, you know, altogether more dangerous crowds in the streets, right? They worry about this. And uh, is there, do you think, in the Biden administration a sort of sensitivity to this, this concern from Beijing and and how I mean a, a kind of the security dilemma sensibility around this?
1: I expect so. Um, I, I think that the you know, we'll have to wait to see how the rest of his administration is populated, but I, I think that there is a sense of strategic awareness of how our actions will be perceived and interpreted in Beijing. Uh, and I think one of the questions that the Biden administration is going to have to grapple with is where do we think it's appropriate for China to express its external ambitions? Right. and where and where do China's actions implicate our vital interests and require us to push back you know very firmly? And you know my view is that any strategy that is designed to block China's rise or try to mire it in angry isolation, is not going to attract the type of international support that would be required in order to achieve those types of objectives.
0: Let's hope they see it that way. Yeah,
1: yeah China is going to rise. It's just uh, I think that we can comfortably anticipate that. The question is where can we live with China playing a more active role on the world stage and where can't we? And I think these are the types of questions that I expect the incoming team is going to be grappling with. And so, from my perspective, you know, I think a policy objective should be to try to point China's rise on a trajectory that the United States can tolerate. uh, To try to push China in the direction of being ambitious without being aggressive, and that's going to require, you know, some uncomfortable adjustments for the United States. Yeah. Uh, We are going to have to be prepared to welcome China to play a larger role on certain issues than it does today. Um, So, for example, it should be okay for us to encourage China to play a greater leadership role in pushing other countries to curb emissions. We should be comfortable with China playing a larger role in contributing to capacity for humanitarian assistance and disaster relief in different parts of the world. We should be okay with China building out uh, the capacity for early detection and early response to pandemics.
0: You you frame Uh, it this way as like, you know, we should be okay with, we should tolerate. I mean, shouldn't we proactively encourage that shouldn't we I mean seek actual collaboration that seems like low-hanging fruit to me I mean it's it's one thing just to dispense with the you know the, the gratuitous insults uh, I I don't know how well I captured this quote of yours but you said something like you expect Biden will halt the practice of gratuitous insults of Beijing insults that imply that the relationship is beyond uh, redemption uh, short of regime change in China and, and I expect that American objections objectives will be framed more so in the context of specific and concrete national interests as opposed to sweeping moral and ideological arguments for the evilness and the perfidy of China. That's great. Uh, but what about just act- proactive collaboration? I mean, I, I feel like if nothing, these these four years have taught us a, uh, that pandemic response. You know, we look at the, the example of what we did together in, in West Africa in 2014 uh, against Ebola Shouldn't we revive these things more proactively?
1: I would be very comfortable seeing us do so. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I remember the, the experience in 2014 because I was there for it. Right. And uh, it, it took a lot of work. Uh, it wasn't easy. Uh, you could argue that the amount of effort uh, exceeded the amount of output. But you know what, Kaiser? It mattered. Right. It, it it mattered that China was on sides trying to deal with a global challenge, where we needed uh, everyone sort of all hands on deck to deal with it. And we need I, I completely agree with you, we need to get back to that. Now, I would say that I think that we should have modest expectations, uh, at least at the start, you know, I think it's easier for the United States and China to coordinate than it is to cooperate. Hmm. And it's a small distinction, but I think it's a meaningful one. It you know, we can coordinate within uh, existing multilateral or multinational coalitions. We can coordinate on the distribution of uh, COVID-19 vaccines around the world, for example. We can do it through COVAX. We can do it through the World Health Organization after we reenter it. Um, It's harder for the United States and China to cooperate simply because – the United States is typically reluctant to lend support to what we perceive to be chinese led initiatives, and the Chinese similarly uh, are pretty cautious about lending their support to what they perceive to be american led uh, efforts so that's fine. Uh, we just need to find uh, an umbrella under which we can coordinate our respective efforts to avoid duplication and maximize efficiencies.
0: What are some of the other uh, pieces of what I would call low hanging fruit that you think that the Biden administration can reach for instantly to? to To try to maybe, you know, lower the temperature. I'm thinking about things like uh, Peace Corps and Fulbrights and and uh, more educational exchanges and, and lifting of some of these visa restrictions. Do you see that in the cards in the first 100 days or so? I,
1: I don't know what the timeline will be for it, but my expectation is that the Biden administration will view America's openness as one of its core strengths. Mm-hmm. And as part of restoring openness to the outside world, uh, we will dispense with some of the, you know, stupidity that, uh, that encumbered us over the past couple of years. There was no advantage to be gained for the United States by suspending the Fulbright program or Peace Corps. Uh, and, and so I think just as part of getting back to some of the principles that have guided our country for a long time, uh, these issues will get taken care of.
0: Yeah. So, uh, obviously, you know, bilateral relationships are uh, very much a a two way street, and much of what happens is going to depend on how Beijing responds. Um, are we seeing any signs right now from Beijing about how they intend to approach the new administration, and and what would you look for? What would you interpret as as signs of a desire on Beijing's part to lower the temperature?
1: Well, I I think that Beijing would like to find ways to remove some of the toxicity and dysfunctionality in the relationship. I expect that they will approach the relationship rather cautiously at the outset, though. Right. Uh, on one hand, I think that they will welcome the fact that America's wolf warriors are leaving Washington and being released back into the wild.
0: Um, Maybe but, they can pen up some of their own. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, th- this is sort of what I was going get, to get at. The United States can't solve the relationship on its own. It's sure. going re- require effort from both sides. And the the question mark uh, really is I think we can all be reasonably confident that the Biden administration will make some some fairly uh, meaningful adjustments to our approach to the relationship. It's easier for the United States to do that because we're experiencing a transition in administrations. China right. is not, and um, you know it'll be interesting to watch. For example, when when. Donald Trump was in the White House, President Xi sort of had a built-in alibi for the downturn in relations. You know, he could sort of shrug his shoulders and say, look, the guy I'm dealing with, he doesn't just blow things up with China, he blows things up with everyone. It's not my fault. Right. Uh, but when, when Trump leaves office on January 20th, so does that excuse. And it's, it's also worth keeping in mind that China has some pretty meaningful events for itself on the horizon. It has its 100-year anniversary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in mm-hmm. July 2021. The Winter Olympics in February twenty two twenty two, and the Party Congress in the fall of twenty twenty two, and each of these events has you know serious symbolic significance inside China, and Beijing is not going to want them to be overshadowed by uh, a rupture in the U.S.-China relationship. Right. And you know Xi Jinping is entering his own re-election season right now,
0: uh, (laughs) and so we have to uh, chuckle when we say
1: yeah. So uh, (laughs) re-election. That's right. Xi Jinping is going to confront a choice: uh, is he willing to invest the sort of the political and personal capital needed to cool things down with the United States and keep them at a a manageable boil, or will he go the other way and stoke nationalism and wrap himself in a blanket of populism? Uh, consequences be damned.
0: Right. I, I was chatting with Ananth Krishnan, who was a reporter for the Hindu for many years. Uh, about the ladakh situation and he he brought up something a uh, really interesting observation uh, that a chinese diplomat once proffered in which i think is really applicable to a lot of china's uh fraught relationships he said that india believes that addressing or even resolving the specifics of the disputed borders uh in arunachal uh, in pradesh or in in, in aksai chin uh, addressing the 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 actual you know, lines of control and the the borders themselves would uh, be a necessary condition to improving the overall relationship. But Beijing's approach has always been uh, that we should first improve the overall relationship, and that will lead naturally to a resolution of the concrete, you know, border issues. My sense is that Beijing... I mean they're always like that. I mean Beijing's more likely to respond positively even with, you know, more sort of substantive concessions if there is a strong signal from from DC that it wants to lower the temperature. Uh it, that's the, the, you know my my read from just having, you know, lived in China for a long time and read a lot, but is that your sense too? I mean is that the case from your experience uh, in in the, in the administration?
1: Well, sure. That the, the- Chinese interlocutors I've dealt with often talk about the overall environment for the relationship. You know, if the if the environment is constructive, if there is a sense that uh, there is respect that goes in both directions, if the United States is seen as um, not uh, standing in opposition to China's rise but trying to shape it in a direction that we can live with, then there is much more space uh, for both countries to to deal with issues in the relationship and to explore. Uh, areas where it is in our self-interest and their self-interest uh, to coordinate our respective actions. But if the, the relationship is toxic, there's really not a, a lot that can be done.
0: Right. Do you think that the, Biden's election has shifted the sort of balance of power, uh, as far as there is one, uh, between the more hawkish and dovish elements within the Beijing leadership? Do you think that it's it's maybe shifted the calculus viewed from Beijing?
1: It's a great question. I don't think we know the answer to that yet. Hmm. Uh, what we've been able to watch from outward or external signals hasn't been terribly encouraging in the sense that um, you know, China's official spokespeople and, and Chinese media have continued to be pretty aggressive in the rhetoric that they're using. Uh, it's, you know, it's often referred to as wolf warrior, which is sort of a, a loose and rather pejorative term. But the, the basic I- idea, as I understand it, is that, um, you know, on one hand, the Chinese people feel like they've been punched in the face by the United States and other countries in the world, and they deserve to have a right to punch back. Uh, on another hand, they feel proud about the fact that they have, um, moved through the COVID process rather expeditiously and are going to be the only major economy in the world that will grow this year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think the Chinese leadership sort of enjoys the positive glow. Of of that comparison, and so uh, there is a tension though, because at the same time, many experienced foreign policy hands in the in China recognize that these messages don't travel well. The the ones that the Chinese are telling themselves don't they just don't travel well overseas? They alienate uh, China from many other parts of the world, and uh, they they're a pretty marked departure from. The low-key, subtle, subdued uh, approach that China exercised for much of the 40 years of its rise. And uh, they worry that it will be uh, alerting and and antagonizing to the rest of the the world. And so there is a tension uh, inside China's foreign policy making process right now. Thus far, the tension has sort of broken in the direction of what serves China's domestic interest, uh, serves its overall interest. Um, but we'll have to continue to watch that space.
0: Right. I'm, I mean, it's particularly worrisome to see, you know, the, the massive spat that's happening with Australia right now. I mean, I, you would think that this it was just an ill-chosen time to do this. And, you know, you, you'd think that they would try to sort of capitalize on on this this Good feeling that's coming out of D.C. right now, but uh, this this seems to have been. I mean, it, uh, to me, it's a terrible miscalculation. But what what signposts should we watch for in coming months to get a sense for what Beijing's thinking?
1: Well, I I agree that just to go on, back to your point for a second on on Australia, I think it's a real miscalculation on Beijing's part to do this at all, uh, but especially to do it right now. Uh, if they were you know, wise about this, they would create and preserve space for Biden to settle in and establish his own approach to the relationship rather than forcing him to react to events that tend to confirm uh, the Trump administration's diagnosis uh, of China's behavior, its intentions and its ambitions. So I I think that they're making a real mistake. Uh, On your second question about signposts, the, I guess I would go back to where we were a moment ago. The, the first signpost is, are the United States and China able to restore a limited capacity for coordination on issues where they both would benefit from working alongside each other? And I think that COVID-19 vaccine distribution is the lowest hanging fruit, mm-hmm. but also you know, perhaps policy coordination to spur global economic recovery uh, within, within the G20. Which, which, we, which we saw
0: in 2008-2009. It,
1: yeah, it's been done before. Yeah. The playbook is still on the shelf, and uh, it can be done again if there is will to do so. The uh, the second signpost would be whether both sides can restore a sense of professionalism uh, to the relationship, where they move beyond name-calling and putting each other in timeout uh, when they're upset about the other's actions. But you know, just accept that uh, that... Direct dialogue is not a form of capitulation, that coordination is not a form of accommodation, and deal with each other as dispassionate uh, major powers. And then the third signpost that I will be looking for is when the two leaders uh, interact with each other. I think that Biden, his, his interest will be in sequencing engagement so that he has a chance to, you know, have intensive engagement with other leaders of allied countries before he does so with sure. Xi I think that she will have an incentive to demonstrate that he's capable of managing relations now that Trump is out of the picture. And this is going to cause him to want to speak with Biden sooner rather than later. And so how how both sides sort of navigate that tension, uh, I think, will offer insight into how they're going to approach the overall relationship.
0: I mean, April has usually been the month where you, f- you see the first sort of direct engagement. Uh, so just a few months afterwards. So it, it, it should be, and that was when mar a was. Um, I think that was the first time that, that C and Obama actually met was in, in April, uh, if I'm remembering that correctly. Obama's first state visit wasn't, of course, until September, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. Um, we've now gone back to the Obama era on a couple of occasions to talk about, you know, uh, West Africa and the Ebola crisis and, and just now talking about the playbooks that are available that maybe Janet Yellen could also take up. But, there are a lot of people who are very concerned about an Obama-era redux uh, on China policy. And I think most people agree that, you know, you can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again, exactly. Uh, are, is this something that uh, you you have a response to? Uh, I, you know, I, I, being an Obama-era yeah. official yourself.
1: <laughs> I, I do have a perspective on it. Uh, I think that First of all, I think that some of the concerns are a bit overstated. I'm not aware of anyone around President-elect Biden that is advocating for a return to the Obama era approach. Uh, Second, I think everyone accepts that the United States has changed over the past four years. China has changed over the past four years. The world has changed over the past four years. So naturally, America's approach to this competitive relationship would would evolve as well. And and just more broadly, uh, I think that if, if you feel that uh, Obama was too conciliatory and Trump was too confrontational, well, Biden's approach may may uh, be more more comfortable, because I, I think that he will comfortably reside in between uh, those two approaches.
0: Yeah, well, let's hope so. So Biden's got an awful lot on his plate right now, and most of it is domestic. I mean, you know, of course, our world is so focused on China right now, uh, but that's not going to be his top priority. Uh, where will it sit in the list of his priorities where should china sit in his list of priorities well my
1: my sense is that china will be viewed as the most pressing um geostrategic challenge that the united states faces but not the most proximate threat to the the safety the health and the prosperity of the american people right. so i Th- that I honor would
0: go to COVID-19. Well, I,
1: yeah, COVID uh, to the economic effects of COVID. Sure. Uh, I, th- I think that, uh, you know, Biden has talked about four crises, uh, COVID, economic issues, climate issues, and racial justice issues. Right. Th- those will be the issues on which his presidency is, is measured. And how well he does in dealing with those issues, I think, will go a long way to determining how effective he will be in generating leverage to to deal with China. And so, China will fit into uh, Biden's hierarchy of priorities to the extent that it intersects with uh, with those major crises that he will inherit uh, upon entering office. But to the extent that he you know approaches China on climate issues or on COVID issues, it's it's not to try to find some salvation or cushion for the relationship. It's because We have a, you know, a self-interest in getting China to do things that will help us uh, address the problems that we confront. And uh, that's, I think, the general orientation that uh, I expect the Biden administration will take towards China at at the outset. Um, But I do think that there will be, you know, some notable points of departure from the Trump administration. A lot of people like to talk about how uh, the Trump administration is boxing the Biden administration in on China and, and locking them into a confrontational approach. I'm... I'm a bit skeptical of of that argument. I think that Biden will have plenty of agency when he enters office to chart his own path for dealing with China. And I think that, you know, one of the points of departure will be that the real focus will be on restoring America's uh, sources of strength, its international prestige, its alliance network, uh, its domestic dynamism. I think that there will be a lot of efforts, like we've talked about, to uh, return values promotion to the center of American foreign policy. Uh, and that will have corollary effects on the on the China relationship. It will put stress on things like Hong Kong and Xinjiang. Um, I think that there will be a real effort to to aggregate the influence of America and its allies for dealing with China. And this will require us to meet our allies where they are on China, rather than you know trying to mobilize uh, the world and you know to array against China in some fashion, which I'm not sure. Is a you know a possible option? I don't. I'm not aware of any country that wants to join a containment effort against China, for example. Right. But but lastly, I think that there will be uh, a real effort to preserve some space within this highly competitive relationship for us to work together uh, on all the issues that that you've raised and we've discussed.
0: One of the most difficult issues that the Biden administration is going to face is dealing with, as you just said, the issues of Xinjiang and and Hong Kong. These are very different issues, of course. Uh, You know, in some sense, the Trump administration has bequeathed a couple of tools. um, You know, for example, entity list uh, that has been used. You know, not only just to sort of you know thwart the Huawei's of the world, but also to punish companies that that the Trump administration has identified as having been complicit in the atrocity that's going on in Xinjiang. And and there are many people who who oppose Trump and have opposed everything about Trump, but have embraced this idea of using the entity list. Uh, how do you feel about this? I mean, what are some of the other tools that are available to the U.S. if it wants to do something meaningful about Xinjiang? I mean, this is a, a difficult one.
1: Yeah, this is a hard one. And, and you and I spoke about this last time you had me on your show. And I you know, I'm heartbroken about it. I, I was the reporting officer for Xinjiang when I served in our embassy in Beijing. Right. I've traveled to every corner of Xinjiang, uh, and this isn't an abstraction. This is something that you know affects me at a deeply personal level. Uh, so, look, I I wish it, I had a better answer to your question. Um, I I'm disappointed in myself that I don't. Uh, but the the way that I've been thinking about it is that our goal should be to make things as uncomfortable as possible for Beijing to maintain its current posture of repression in Xinjiang. And the more that we can keep an unblinking eye on what's going on there, uh, to make it a standard feature of every discussion that we have uh, bilaterally with the Chinese, to be specific about uh, our concerns, to be willing to be both public and private in expressing those concerns, to urge like-minded groups of partners to coordinate with us on public and private messages to the Chinese, to push the United Nations to, to send a special rapporteur to Xinjiang to make China block it. Um, th- these things won't change the situation in Xinjiang overnight, but hopefully... With time, it will it will accelerate uh, the process of China coming to the conclusion that the current approach that they're on is causing uh, more costs than benefits, and that there are more effective ways to address the the concerns that they state that they have.
0: And what about Hong Kong? A very different issue, but um, some of the same tools have been have been invoked Uh, A sort of global magnitsky kind of an approach now, punishing. people who are directly involved in, in the control, uh, who are involved in, in the passing of the national security law. How do you feel about that?
1: Well, I, I think that Beijing is making a mistake in Hong Kong. I think that they're mortgaging dynamism for social control. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we should bear in mind that not all is yet lost in Hong Kong. Um, the The elements that make Hong Kong special uh, not all of them have have been extinguished. I think yet,
0: of- the, the, the policy approach that the Trump administration and Congress have taken is to pass the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which almost does sort of accelerate the process of, you know, all is lost. I mean, it, 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 to me, it, it seems to, to just sort of relegate then Hong Kong to just another Chinese city as though we're just sort of throwing in the towel. Uh, it seems like a counterproductive approach to me.
1: Yeah, I'm not a fan of throwing in the towel. I'm also not a fan of, you know, destroying the city to save it, to, to use a, uh, a Vietnam metaphor. Um, you know, look, these are hard, hard issues, and I don't pretend to have quick, snappy answers to them. Right. But um, legal transparency is something that we should care a lot about and, and work vigorously to try to protect. Um, free assembly, free speech. These are things that are, you know, obviously being assaulted and threatened on a daily basis. Yeah. The, the, the best way that I know of to, to do it is to push hard, uh, like we were talking about with Xinjiang, uh, publicly, privately, bilaterally, and, and in coordination with our allies and partners. But also I think that we need to open our doors to Hong Kongers that face credible threats of persecution. Uh, this is who we are. Uh, We need to live up to our ideals. And having industrious, well-educated, ambitious Hong Kongers entering the United States, I think, will be a great asset to America over the long term.
0: Absolutely. I think it would be too. Uh, There were a couple of lines in your talk that really hit home for me. You flicked uh, at one of them. uh, Again, I apologize if if i was incorrect in my character. You said something like, the hard reality is that the U.S. can no more control China's future than China can control ours uh yeah, and yet from from the chinese perspective it often will seem like everything that we've just been talking about are american attempts to control china's future um you know when when that's beijing's starting point it, it the, a, a further into the conversation becomes very difficult what's the way to be cognizant of chinese sensibilities around sovereignty and at the same time not abdicate our own values <laughs> you know, yeah a, that's, yeah. A, that's a big well
1: one. um that is a big question, and I'm not sure that we've fully resolved it over the past 40-plus years. But what I can say is that um, being consistent about who we are, what we stand for, what we believe in, is the best way to to manage these issues. When, when these issues are used episodically or used as a blunt instrument to attack or seek to undermine the Chinese Communist Party, uh, it's easier for the Chinese to form their own narratives about – the malicious intent of the United States trying right. to, you know, tarnish the Chinese Communist Party at home and ruin its image on the world
0: stage. See, this is my we- big problem with so much of the way that we've approached Xinjiang already. I mean, the idea that we use the entity list, uh, which was used just, you know, months before that, uh, specifically to just basically to kneecap Chinese technology. Uh, China, of course, is going to believe that 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 your concerns over the, the rights of, of the Uyghurs are just... You know, our it's you have an ulterior motive. This is just something that you're holding up um, as a fig leaf. When and really, what you want to do is is drive China to its knees in technology. Yeah, it's and so some of the yeah.
1: the most effective interlocutors that I've had the privilege of watching have also been willing to be um, open about America's own imperfections. You know that we don't approach these conversations from a from a position of perfection. Uh, we have our our own challenges that we're dealing with, but we're doing it in an open transparent manner and trying to uh you know move our country forward and that we you know we're motivated by trying to see that the chinese people have the opportunity to realize their own uh their own potential so that the more that we can frame what we're talking about in terms of the values that we're trying to uphold and, and advance and less in the uh sort of Attacking mode uh, that has been prevalent in the past several years. I think the more traction our message will get. Will it change Xi Jinping's mind tomorrow? No. Uh, But will it be harder for him and those around him and those inside China to ignore? I think so.
0: Uh another line that you you had in that that talk for Brown, which was just so good was uh you said ultimately this contest will come down to which governance system delivers better results and performs better, and may the best governance system win uh which won one you a lot of plot. So, i mean it was it, it, it's great, but when you look at the situation right now uh especially from Beijing. There's less and less question of which governance system is delivering results, especially when they look at at, at COVID nineteen, when they look at three hundred thousand deaths in the United States, when you look at the United States uh, with a, a, a tiny fraction of the world's population accounting now for a full fifth of of COVID uh, cases, and they they look at that, they look at uh, another uh, you know uh, issues like carbon emissions reductions, where China can't claim that it's, you know, the world's leader in this, of course, and it's still the world's largest carbon emitter by a huge margin. But uh, China has been uh, really, really ramping up its its uh, renewables. Uh, solar just passed wind uh, for the year 2020 as the the, the, the largest uh, renewable contribution to the energy mix in China. Uh, there's a lot to, to look at and a lot of, of enthusiasm for this idea of sort of coercive environmentalism uh and that that has dovetailed with this this narrative about uh the importance of of government led top down responses to uh, pandemics china's feeling pretty confident about its own system right now uh and the worry of course is that uh it it's approach is resonating with a lot of of third countries that are that are watching and and making their own decisions about how to govern going forward uh what what do you have going for us right now
1: it's you've you've put your finger on a a real interesting issue i i was really troubled a couple weeks ago i was in a closed door track two discussion with friends in beijing or counterparts uh one of whom was one of the leading u.s china scholars who i greatly admire and he just asserted flat out that the United States has lost its capacity for self-correction. It's gone. And uh, time will tell if, if that is in fact the case. I, I remain optimistic that the United States uh, has the capacity to self-correct, and I look forward to seeing the United States uh, exceed his expectations and disprove that, uh, that line of thinking. You know, we've, we, the United States has been knocked down a lot of times, uh, and each time, it's managed to get up. And you know, we were we were written off uh, with with Sputnik. We we thought that we were in decline with uh, the the oil shocks, with Vietnam War, uh, the global financial crisis. Over and over again, uh, people have have written us off, and we've proven them wrong. And we need to do so again. Build back but better. I would all <laughs> I yeah, build back there, but I would also you know encourage our Chinese friends to have a little bit of modesty in the way that they think about these things because sure, sure. yes, uh, the United States uh, it's, it's apparent and visible to the entire world, uh, the scale, of the challenges that we confront and the, the hurdles that we have to overcome. But China and China's leaders have some real thorny issues that they need to deal with as well, whether it's heavy debt loads, inefficient allocation of capital, demographics that are trending negative. Environmental issues—you know, the, there's a real urgency around air, water, and soil pollution, inequality issues—and um, you know, she has also built a very expensive domestic and external security apparatus that uh, is going to be pretty resistant to going on a diet. So, uh, they've got a lot of their own challenges to deal with as well. And I'm cautiously optimistic that in the coming years, uh, both countries are going to renew their focus on dealing with their own domestic challenges. Uh, and I think that would probably be healthy for the relationship.
0: Ryan, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about this. Um, it's always such a pleasure to be able to zoom out and look at the big picture stuff with you. I mean, you're, it's just it's fantastic. Uh, I, I look forward to having you back on. And I, I hope and pray that there is a place for you in this new administration because, boy, do we need people like you. Uh, let's move on down to recommendations. Before I, we do that, I just want to quickly remind listeners that the cynical podcast is powered by SubChina, which means the best way to support what we do with the podcast and the other shows in the network is to support SubChina by subscribing to our Access newsletter. Just 88 bucks a year, and there's always some promotion or another going on, so you can a- email me, and I'll make sure that you get the best one. I, I promise that you will be just astonished at how much news our team manages to gather each day and how much more on top of things you're going to feel just from spending a few minutes reading it every day. Uh, On to recommendations. Ryan, what do you have for us?
1: My recommendation is anything written by John Le Carre. Uh, He he is a tonic to those of us who see the world in shades of gray and uh, are less able to see things in black and white. Uh, He is a uh, a master at uh, describing the human condition and its frailties and uh, you know spending time with him and his writing uh, is all to the best
0: uh, you know I I really he just passed as you know as we know uh, at the ripe old age of 89 what a wonderful writer he is and I, I I think that while the smiley series is just of course fantastic his later works are also great Uh our kind of trader, for example, was just so good. Uh, the, uh, the the constant gardener that was just great. I mean, all of all of his his later stuff, I've really enjoyed it. Even when he's gone away uh, from the Cold War, and when he's even gone away uh, from spycraft as as the the main topic of his of his writing, he's just he's a fantastic writer. I pinged Ed Wong on Twitter last night because I saw uh, Ed and I have connected over the years about John Le Carre. We we've both we're both avid fans, and you know about the whole the whole genre, the whole espionage genre. Uh, we we're, we're both real big fans of that, and so every time we've gotten together for drinks, that that always comes up in conversation, and we, we delve into that a bit. And he he's he's thought very deeply about it. So anything that Ed writes on this is great. But uh, just as you said, um, you know he. Yeah, I mean, Locare Lo was just so good at, um, at at humanizing even you know Carla and all the the people on the other side of this. It was just so fantastic. He'll be missed. He will be missed. Indeed. Um, I'm going to uh, offer my recommendation uh, to the Atlantic writer Ed Young, Y O N G, who has just done a tremendous service to us all. With every piece that he's written about the COVID nineteen pe- epidemic, um, his his latest for the Atlantic is called "How Science Beat the Virus," and it's about the really impressive mobilization of the global scientific community. Just if you look at the, the statistics that he cites about the numbers of papers that were uh, of scientific papers that have been uh, written just this year, and how the overwhelming majority of them have been uh, specifically on the COVID nineteen uh, uh, on the SARS CoV two virus. Uh, looks at how scientists from all sorts of of specializations pivoted really really quickly, uh, shifted the work that they're doing to focus on this and how you know we've really been able to just in record time been able to uh, to sequence this thing to understand how it works. Uh, he always offers really rich historical, Uh, perspective as well. He talks to just a huge range of people. He knocks every story out of the park and and, then leaves me wanting the next one. My hat is just off to this guy. He's such a great reporter. Uh, My recommendation. Anyway, Ryan, once again, man, what a a pleasure to talk to you.
1: It's been my pleasure, Kaiser. Thanks so much for having me on your show.
0: We will have you back again soon. I look forward to it. Happy holidays to you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Gua and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News. And make sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.